Okay, we're going. <laughs> no official way to start these things. So, Rosh, who are you? Who am I? I remember reading this question and being like, who am I? That's a, that's a big ex- existential question. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Rashini Turner. I am, I think there's multiple versions of me. There's Rugby Rosh, who, uh, who plays for Hong Kong right now. Well, when COVID isn't on, but sometimes plays for Hong Kong, which is pretty cool. There's uh, rugby coach me, who, who at the moment coaches under 14 girls, but has a, a history coaching women, which has been really cool. One of my big passions and also and also used to work in rugby, which was great. Almost a job that I got before I even wanted it. It was yeah, really great experience. And then there's working Rosh, who, who now works in recruitment as of yesterday has a full-time job so it was a was an, a full-time intern but officially got return offer so very nice she's a business woman mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's this family friend friend rosh and there's also there's also other versions of me that come out every now and again but that's that's the rough gist of me <laughs> that's a pretty good answer to that question yeah that's a lot of things where would you like to start unpacking all those things maybe just at the balance of them all mm-hmm. that's that's almost where that's almost how that wraps up quite nicely because there are so many versions of me there's so many hats that I wear and I think as a woman especially in sport you have to wear all of those hats at once which becomes so difficult when you're trying to thrive when yeah. and sometimes you just end up surviving because there's just too much there's not enough hours in the day sometimes yeah I think that's the general gist of, of me would you like to get started exploring women in sport and we just dive right in there would you like to talk about your rugby career to start with yeah yeah we'll start with the rugby career so so I started rugby when I was 10 years old so I always grew up with rugby in my house so I had uh, one of my earliest sport memories was watching my dad play rugby in England when I was seven years old yeah I remember him being at the bottom of a rack and there were just men piling on him and it was just a massive dog pile I was like what is this get me involved (laughs) yeah (laughs) no but I I I never really had had a desire to be involved at that point but I did that those were the things I was exposed to as a sport so my other really early rugby memory again when I was seven years old was watching England win the world cup in 2003 like I remember the drop kick I remember wow. watching that I remember watching England when I was 10 11 years old uh, win this rugby sevens and I was convinced that if I put these two inflatable uh, foam fingers on my head <laughs> that that was a lucky hat mm-hmm. and they would score but that would also block the New Zealand supporters behind me from watching the game Incredible. so that was great but it wasn't my dad that got me into it my dad wasn't really actually for women's rugby at that point he wasn't exposed to it he, he'd grown up in like rugby is the male sport the men in my dad's side of the family played rugby the woman didn't the woman didn't even watch it but that what got me into it was in my class in primary school there was the daughter of the chairman of the club that I joined so cycling stingrays and she got all of her friends she was basically sick of watching her boys her her brothers play so she got she set up like a girls team essentially and and when was that sorry that was 2004 I think the first stingrays women's team was 
um, but I joined in 2005. Ago. Yeah. So that was a little little bit later. But one of my best friends in my class said, why don't you come down? Yeah. She's still one of my best friends now. She And and so I went down. I, I remember the night before I was so nervous because my dad started talking about how he dislocated his elbow playing rugby and all of these things. Was he doing that to scare you a little bit away from it maybe? I don't know. I think that and we were watching something like those old on... Did you ever watch like AM, AMC, AMX? Um, it was one of those ones where it was filmed disasters, <laughs> like caught on camera. Yeah. And he was talking about that. And it just, I don't think he really thought about it, but I was just so terrified. And you were like, oh my God, this is going to happen to me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think the first few years that I played rugby, it was a massive wuss. Like, I really, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just, I, I actually didn't wear contacts for the first six years of playing rugby. So you didn't like... I oh. couldn't see the ball. <laughs> Is it like guesswork? You just have your hands up always ready? So I think my I think when I first started, my eyes were all right. But yeah. it, it, it generally de- de- deteriorated until I finally got glasses when I was maybe 14, 15, but didn't get contacts until I was about 16. So gosh, the ball would sort of be a blur as it was coming in. And then I would see it at the last moment. So it meant my reaction time was great. Hands, yeah. not so much direction not so much either because <laughs> i couldn't see yeah. where i was going so that was so i was terrible at rugby for my first five or six years oh but I, but i think that's almost a lot of that was why i enjoyed it so much was because i was terrible at it so i wanted to be better at it but also i had a great group of girls around me and and also my dad was very much adamant that i shouldn't be doing it for him so he was he was never really he never really came down to my games he'd come down every now and again but I think it was, he grew to love it more. And I think he, I think when rugby was added to the Olympics and that was women's rugby and men's rugby in 2009, that was like a big turning point because women's rugby from that point onwards went upwards. And, and that got was the airtime. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I was 16 and I actually started improving a lot, but also I think he saw I had an interest in it beyond just playing and I knew what I was talking about. And I think that was always my advantage was I think knowing more about the game than other people because I was just obsessed because I wanted to be better because that's always been my like driving force if I'm not good at something I'm gonna make sure I'm good at it I think he that's when he became very much my number one supporter and since then he's always been like number one fan he came and watched me in England he flew over to watch all of my games in my final year at uni so it's very much it's very much been a little bit of a journey since now and now it's been 14 years of playing rugby. Oh my gosh. And you played while you were at university. Yeah. I think that was a big point for me. I think yeah. I think if I didn't go to the university university that I went to, I might not have ended up in the position that I'm in now. I'm very thankful for the university I went to. Why do you say that? What was the... I think just the setup at so Durham University was just so fantastic because you had so many levels of it. So... You had the university level, of course, and the girls there were really friendly, but also it was such a self-made culture. So the the club was set up by this man called Cameron Henderson 35 years ago, 36, it'll be 37 years now. Oh my gosh, you're He's so good at remembering club. dates as well as a little bit of yeah. a tangent. I'm like, <laughs> I had to do a lot of research for this, but he set up the club 30, 37 odd years ago uh, and against... And a lot of people were like, why are you setting this up? Specifically the women's or? Yeah. So he's, and he's still there now. And so it's always had this sort of self-made culture mm. to it. And and the girls have always been so 
so they run everything themselves so there's the university team which has the combination of coaches and has that extra resource but so many of those girls then dive into the college level which is at Durham they have colleges but the colleges are different to Oxbridge where it's almost almost houses your academics it's purely social essentially Mm -hmm. it's where you stay it's where your pastoral care is Um, but it's also where sport is so you can play play rugby for your college okay and so we'd play against each other and those were all run by the girls at university level but also girls who didn't know the sport so it was just like it was very much a pure pick up and play love of the game love of the game or just even love of being around your friends turning up hungover on a saturday <laughs> sometimes i used i captained the team in my in my second year and i would try and like barter the minutes down because it was meant to be 20 minute halves and normally we'd all be pulling up so hungover that i'd walk over to the ref and be like 10 minute halves please maximum 15 <laughs> maximum no high, 15 no let's try and bargain with the other team we don't want to be here for very long <laughs> but it was like that proper grassroots grassroots version of rugby that you don't get i think in hong kong because in mm. hong kong it maybe it's because of the space everything's so regimented everything has to happen in a in a set way you have to have a pitch booking whereas there's so much well i can't speak bureaucracy that's not necessarily present when you have like accessibility to those pitches and stuff just outside yeah and you had girls who you could just you could just wander down to the race course and just kick the ball about and it just had that set up and that's almost how durham works across so many different sports where it's so self-functioning across so many different areas and it's so student run that it it definitely allows someone like me who's so who very much was driven by myself in rugby and by the people around me to just get stuck in essentially did you have any coaches that were really pivotal in that getting stuck in mentality or do you think it was always from yourself maybe from your family i had i've definitely had coaches who I've learned lots for, from. I've definitely had players I've also lo- learned mm. lots from. Uh, I think namely maybe coaches that didn't give me a chance, but also, but I think I think big coaches for me was when I was 17, 18, because I think that's the stage where you either drop out of it for girls, namely at rugby and especially in Hong Kong. I think when you get 16, 17, 18, school becomes a thing boys maybe could become a thing or <laughs> girls um mm. but they i think there's so many other life pressures that sometimes sport gets put on a back burner mm. and especially a sport like rugby because I, i've seen so many girls just fall out of it for whatever reason and so those coaches so i had actually the older sister of rachel of rachel one of my best friends and and her soon-to-be husband and they're now married with three almost three kids now mm-hmm. but they before pre-kids were just our coaches and they and Rosie came from a great background but they were both just so like invested in us and they taught us so many things that and it, and it and at that stage it moved from just dads screaming and shouting at you but it was actually two people who really invested and really genuinely cared about us and really pushed us because they got us into senior rugby and senior rugby exposed me to a whole different there's a it's a new if you're a big fish in a small pond it's like a little bit of a big bigger pond but then they also it also made me consider going into a huge pond which would have been england compared to hong kong so they were the ones who told you to like get stuck in overseas when you were at uni i think they told me to get stuck in into senior rugby which made me want to continue to pursue it after yeah. youth which i think it's such a key transitional period that 
I'm really grateful for them. And what is that shift like? Like you said, small fish in a bigger pond when you changed to senior rugby. For me, for me and my frail self, a lot of injuries in that first year. (laughs) English girls are bigger. Yeah. (laughs) It is so much learning because you just learn so many different things. I but I've I've learned a lot of things from different coaches. I've been very thankful and very grateful to have some very good coaches in my life. Like even at school, one of our our coaches is now the analyst for Hong Kong. So I was just very lucky to to cross paths with him. I've had, I've been coached in the UK by just a a guy, a Northern guy. (laughs) One of my, some of my favorite sessions actually. We at Durham, we used to have this mud patch (laughs) and it would be called the wasteland. And the wasteland was where it essentially was contact and tackle central. And he would basically create like a, a square and you had to basically fight your way out of it. Or when you have a, a northern man screaming at you, like tackle her, you have no option. Get her to the ground. <laughs> you now. have no option just to like tackle her. But he made it so much fun. Yeah. Like he'd, he, we had these like ter- Terminator squares where you could run at people with bags. and Amazing. <laughs> almost like gladiator training yeah yeah Mm. essentially that and and those things were really good fun but it made me love the contact side which made me grow as a player so much got you out of that worst nature yeah yeah yeah. Um, but I've also had coaches that maybe made me grow because of of just like how they treated me or even just how they pushed me so I think I've been been lucky to to be around a lot of great players and coaches in my time as well is that some stuff that you take with you now that you're a coach yeah I think coaching a lot is actually a, is, is actually imitation yeah. a lot of the time imitation and adapting so taking some of the stuff that you've seen and you've liked and taking it and adapting it to be your own style because yes you can innovate on the same things and and rugby as a sport and sport generally de- develops as time goes on but you just take that stuff with you and those learnings and as long as you're open to continuing to adapt as the game adapts, I think. Yeah. If you're just like a sponge soaking things up, I think that's always the best thing. I think that's with anything as well, not just coaching. Yeah. So what would you describe your coaching style like now then? I'm such a bad cop. <laughs> <laughs> I So I, I coach at the moment with another girl and I am, I'm quite, I'm very straight to the point, mm. even with my under 14 girls at the moment. So I, I've coached, my background is very much coaching my peers, so a lot of women, so 18 to 21, and so and I've also coached boys, so 12 to 13, that was... A different kettle of fish? Different kettle of fish, yeah. but even just being back in Hong Kong, I've coached six-year-olds and, and the under-14s, but I think the under-14s, it's almost treating them how they want to be trapped. yeah. Tret? Tret. Treated. Is that a word? We'll call it a word. That sounds Tread. cool. It makes sense. Treat people how they want to be treated and give them, so almost not give them all the answers, I'd say. So I'm I'm tough, but I'd say I'm firm, but fair. So you give them a chance to kind of figure it out by themselves. Yeah. But I feel like that kind of increases passion as well, because if you're not interested, you're like, well, actually, I don't care about figuring it out. Yeah. And I think I'm a big advocate of you need to be there as a 14 year old because you want to be there not because your parents mum and dad are shuttling you in a car and they say you need to be the best rugby player in the world because I've seen so many people who have been forced to do it by their parents and they just burn out and there have been so many good talents I think I've played alongside who have just burnt out and just fell out of love with the game because because of the pressure yeah and at the teenage years as well have you had experience with that pressure yourself no, not for my parents. I'm very lucky. Very, I think they were very much 
about making sure that I did things that I enjoyed but also wasn't able to just drop out of things as soon as it was difficult. What about from a more elite perspective like if you're playing for Hong Kong how is that pressure there? It's a different pressure I think. I think it, it's a it's a tough balance actually because it's that's when it starts to move away from being something that you do for fun whereas it's something that you do for function because those environments and the way it's set up is often made to put you under pressure so high performance environments because they only get to see us for two hours for two sessions a week those sessions are all so pressurized and they're trying to push and mold us and sometimes i question that sometimes i don't i don't know whether that's appropriate all the time if you can continuously be expected to always be at your best yeah but i think that's where the learning comes from is is knowing that sometimes you're not going to be the best, but that that's where the learning happens. That's where training is. And it, it's, a, it's so hard in high performance because when you're training in those environments, you're competing against your peers as well because you want to get selected at the end of the day. So there's a pressure to be on all the time, but you can't be on all the time. So that's an interesting point, actually, because as much as you want to work with your team and stuff, it's different to a social level where it is very much working with your team, but it's like, no, I have to be selected by this team. Yeah. This is, I have to earn my place to be here. And there's a way to do it as well. Because mm. I, I think everyone takes a different approach to it. You get girls who almost, yeah, they, they don't want you in the team. They want to push you out. And I, I had that experience a little bit. Not in a nasty or malicious way at all. But I was the, the person that came from the UK with my accent who was just kind of dropped into the team. And that's that's a whole other story, I think, about how I got into the national team setup. But when I first arrived, I think there was a lot of, who is this girl? How is she at her place? So there was a lot of me having to earn my spot having on the team. Having to prove yourself. Yeah, but also when you play against these, these players in club, they're trying to show you up because they know that you're the new kid on the block and the one they're the one that they're interested in the coaches are interested in so they want to make you look bad sometimes and i don't think it's i don't i don't think it's right i think it's i think you've got to push each other but you d- you've got to do it in the right way <laughs> was it ever you said it's not malicious but was it ever a time where you're like mm, okay we can stop this now no, no no you just sort of accept people for how they're going to approach it because i think if you get too bogged down in it it's it's fun it's actually yeah. quite fun when you play against someone who's definitely targeting you sometimes because you have to adapt because it's another challenge mm-hmm. i think if you relish it as a challenge rather than take it as an annoyance yeah. yeah i think that's a better way to look at it i feel like that's a very confident approach to it as well that confidence in your own abilities is so important because if someone does come at you and they're like okay prove yourself and then you're like oh, can i prove myself yeah i think it's new for me though mm. i think i think i i like the underdog personality for sure i quite like being not necessarily the best and working myself up there because my rugby career was that my rugby career was being blind and being terrible and having to work (laughs) myself into a setup whether that was forced by biology or just not wearing contacts so I so that's a that's a new thing that I have to contend with because but I think I I think I've lately been trying to reframe it and be and say because you're you're never going to be the best Mm. at this point so although these people might be the people that are trying to catch you or trying to compete with you and you're either on the same level or above them there's already there's a level up beyond that so you're the underdog 
yeah. that way because I think I thrive under that mentality rather than the one being chased I was watching that documentary on Netflix with the coach for the women's soccer team and when they won the championship and she was like it's always easy to be the chaser than to be the one being chased yeah it's so easy to get complacent as well yeah so do you want to talk about how you ended up in Hong Kong playing for the national team yeah we could talk about <laughs> that one that one's a an interesting one so I I played age group stuff so I played in the under 18 setup and the under 27 setup but then I think I fell off the radar a little bit in terms of Hong Kong rugby because I was in the UK for the majority of my time so then by chance I actually ended up going to a few Scotland camps I'm not Scottish at all at all if you can't tell from my how did you end up there um my grandma is born in Scotland I'm actually more Scottish than I am English (laughs) despite the accent uh so we won't tell them it's fine (laughs) so it was actually my gran was so proud of me for being in that setup I did a few Scottish training camps and and that was an interesting one for me because it was a struggle in terms of identity for sure because Hong Kong is where I grew up Hong Kong is my home it still is my home so and even though I'm not Chinese it would it was difficult to think that I would play for somewhere else but that experience was so incredible because the Scottish girls are so lovely they're a great setup but I think for me it was it help me make the decision in terms of my national rugby because for some people I think when you get some people who play for different countries I think heritage means less to them for me being an international kid I think Hong Kong meant more to me I wanted to play for the place that very much shaped my experiences for good or bad I had good and bad coaches in Hong Kong I had good and bad coaches in the UK but that was where I felt like I wanted to play that's what you want to represent yeah so I thought uh, so in the summer that I was back after I I had finished my the sevens camps in July of 2019 with Scotland I was here for the summer didn't know whether I was going back to the UK didn't know whether I was going to pursue the Scotland thing and was this post university this was post you know middle of my university course so I was thinking about finishing my master's in the UK as well but I did have the option of doing it in Hong Kong. And then I actually ran into the sevens coach just walking to a training session. Oh, no way. And he had seen me play against Hong Kong in a tournament in Portugal. So I was with my university team playing against them. And, and then... he just recognised you from that? You must have made an impact, Rosh. <laughs> no, I think I think it was partly that. Well, maybe it was that, but it was also because I knew the Hong Kong girls. And so I'd been chatting to them before and after the tournament as well. And I'm fairly recognisable with the long legs and the the brown skin. There's not very many of us around. So, so I was invited to those training camps. And then I also ended up having a meeting with two of the coaches about my master's and how I might be able to do it in Hong Kong and do it with Hong Kong rugby. So because I was looking at basically human resources for my master's, I, was, I did a master's in management, but was interested in aspects of measuring job performance, like satisfaction, engagement, and how we could transfer that into a work context and in a work context where, or in a sports context where you have athletes who are balancing jobs and careers with their, with their sporting careers. So I had that meeting and they said, you could do it in Hong Kong. You would have to work hard to get into the national setup, but 
it's it's an option there for you. It's an exciting year with a World Cup qualification coming up as well. And for me, I was like that was that that combination of being able to do my masters, being able to do the rugby, and having that opportunity here. I think it was just it just fit so much better than if it was in the UK. In the UK, I was going to have to travel lots, mm. and I'm very much someone with it when it comes to opportunities where if it feels right then you just need to take it so I did so I stayed and then all of a sudden I play played one game for my club my new club in Hong Kong and then I got put in the national setup and within a month I think or two months I was on a plane to Amsterdam for my first oh actually a plane to Scotland because we went to Scotland for some pre-training camps which was always quite interesting going to the place where you just left I didn't realize it was so soon after that you yeah flew wow okay yeah so I did Scotland and then did Amsterdam and then had my first camp camp against the Netherlands and first two caps there literally two months after you've joined the setup yeah yeah, I joined it in yeah September, October, November. So about two and a half, three months. That's pretty crazy. Like considering how fast everything moves. Yeah. You start your masters. They're like, come on, let's do it here. But you obviously must have made an impact. I mean, I think you said casually that that may have been it, but clearly it was. If they've seen you play a game, after just telling you that you'd have to work to get into it, and then they're like, yeah. no, come on, come join us. Yeah, I think I think because I I think I was a different player coming back to Hong Kong than when I left. I think all of these things about physicality and and just knowing the game and knowing the pace of the game better, I think really helped me with getting back into that setup for sure. I think the big shaping experience I think for me was that made me the better player was joining the new premiership so I played the first two seasons of the new premiership the Tyrrells premier 15s it was it's now the Allianz premier 15s I I played the first two seasons in that and that was just a a whole new level you're playing against England internationals Scottish internationals Irish Welsh all these players that have played it in world cups or have won world cups alongside people who've won world cups and they're just some of they are the most incredible players they're the most incredible women is it ever intimidating going up against people who are, yeah, the top level of their sport? It is. Well, definitely. I think it's inti- intimidating for sure. But I think once you get settled into that, and I think once you... I I try not to, like, enamor these people. I think as soon as you give them too much respect, that's when you've lost instantly, like, in terms of individual battles. Because you give them more of a pedestal than they're already on. Like they might be better than you, but if you consider them to be this like godlike, incredible person, you just give them another leg up that they definitely don't need if they're already better than you. <laughs> Especially on those one-on-one fights and stuff. If you're there and you're like, okay, no, I need to put this person on the ground right now. Yeah. Yeah, it would be tough if you're thinking, oh, I should put them down gently. And like, not that anyone would do that. But... Or that they'll step me. But then yeah. that extra thought that is extra like the second, second you need to mm. be able to actually tackle them. I think that's definitely how you get better, though. And being exposed to that would have been amazing. What is the biggest difference that you've noticed playing over there versus playing in Hong Kong? I think the knowledge of the game, being able to run a game. So I played one of the most incredible players that I I don't think she even remembers this, <laughs> is playing because I was so young in the team. And she, she'd been at the club for so many years was Katie McLean. So she used to play Katie Daly McLean now. So she... She played for England for a number of years, was captain when they won the World Cup. 
in 2014. She she just reads the game like no one else. She she came on at half time in one of these games that we were playing and she just she just ran it. She scored she we were down by four tries and she just created four tries for us in in 40 minutes and just because she saw where the space was she saw what was going on before anyone else did and she was just there and just having that knowledge of the game was just incredible and the same with Tamara Taylor who I also played alongside but she also coached us at the university for a bit she again just has she knows everything about the line out which is so cool she's had she got hundred and something caps oh Both my god something caps what is the highest amount of caps for a female player so it's rocky clark she has more than she has more than the male she has the most of anyone i think it's like 135 that's insane yeah and i, I even played against her once and you're you can't you have to stop yourself yeah if you are like a nerd of the game like yeah i am you're just like oh my gosh, it's this person, oh my gosh, it's that person. But also just from like a physical perspective, uh, being able to tolerate that much contact and that much at that level is crazy. Yeah, I'm kind of in shock with that. I'm still trying to process that. I'm trying to do some math, but I'm terrible at math. How many years was she playing for? I think she started in the England team when she was really young. I think it might have been close to like 15, 16 years, maybe, maybe more. Is the women's side full-time? The women's the, English side is yeah. now full time. Only just now. So they were f- they were full time for the World Cup in 2017. 20 yeah, 2017. Okay. They didn't win it, which yeah. I have opinions about as well. <laughs> <laughs> but they after I think they became full time actually in 2019. 20, end of 2019. That kind of makes me really upset. That's not as soon as it should have been. There was a lot of controversy at the time when they did become professional and then they were pulled. So they were professional, but they were told actually, from what I know from my friend who plays, that when they signed it, they were told it was going to be a temporary contract. It was just to get them to a World Cup, which I which I, I understand. But that would be so disheartening to hear. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because from my career background so I, I understand the financials behind it it's so much harder to f- finance a professional program than it than we think it is and there has to be and sometimes we talk about making people f- professional and just driving that but I think there are a lot of other approaches and the solution sometimes isn't making people professional if the setup behind, underneath it is not strong enough then I don't think professionalism is the way forward i think we've seen it in hong kong unfortunately lately what would a strong setup look like to you then i think you've got to make sure that the club setup underneath is strong enough and the base of players is big enough yeah and the growth of the game on a revenue standpoint because if you're just pumping money into a small group of girls but you're not pumping money into the game overall you just create a gap i think between the girls who are professional and the girls that you play in your leagues has that changed in england since the women have become full-time or do you think that they're still not pumping as much money into it as they could be or they're not changing the grassroots levels? I think COVID has definitely thrown a spanner into the works because I know quite a few of the clubs have started to pay some of their players so okay. professionally, which I think helps. It does help because 
I think a lot of us have to make sacrifices upon our careers. It's, it's so hard because I think, yeah, COVID is really... I think there's been so many articles saying that women's rugby is, or women's sport is the biggest loser in all of this because so many leagues nowadays are semi-professional, but when you're semi-professional and there's COVID on, you can't put people in a bubble like you can in the NBA mm. or the NFL or the Premiership. Like You can't do any of these things. Yeah, because you take away some people's main form of income if they're in a bubble for six weeks or what longer now, yeah. now that quarantine is like six weeks. And, and sport, unfortunately, isn't really a sustainable, sustainable financial model because so much of it... So if you have a big stadium, for example, if, unless you use it for, unless you ha- unless you can use it all the time and you can rent it out all the time, which is why loads of people go for AstroTurf because then you can rent it out and then you can make all the money on that. But a lot of the, their money comes from revenue from events, sponsorship, all of these other things that, or or they use it as like a corporate venue. And so that, so for example, Twickenham under underwent a huge re- rebrand so Twickenham the like the home yeah. of rugby in, in England they rebranded so and they redid the whole of the west wing and I think that was for corporate events as well so that they could host events there and then they could make this giant bit of real real estate make more money mm. because otherwise it's not sustainable it's just a bit of land that's just sat there but then you think in Hong Kong, for example, there's not a big bit of real estate that you're going to be make, making money off of. Everything's government land. So then in terms of revenue sources, you're so limited. So unless you're filling out stadiums, for example, that's where it becomes difficult. It's a much harder setup. And that's why I think that's why women's football's done well is because as that league was growing, because they're supported by other the other men's clubs, which and the football makes so much... There's so much more football and rugby if you more money in football than there is in rugby mm. then these setups are able to, able to be fostered but men's rugby clubs are losing money at the moment so it's just not a great time if i think financially generally i know i don't think anyone expected this well obviously no one expected it. <laughs> not at all <laughs> how important do you think that it is for the men's teams and the men's clubs to show support for the women oh 100 percent. but i so I think it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. So we see men crossing over into women's women's sport and then becoming advocates, becoming allies, and that's really really important because I think if if women are the only people fighting their battle, then it's never going. It just becomes a men's versus women's thing. Where if it's women's and men's allies, it's a like even if you you talk about it on a percentage game, it's eighty versus twenty percent of these male bigoted fools who just don't appreciate women's rugby. And I think you can't be passive in that. I get so annoyed by people who are passive. Have you seen all the posts, like whenever World Rugby or whatever on Instagram posts a photo of like the women's teams, the comments on it are beyond vile. They are. To me, like I was having a conversation with Cal about it and we were talking and we were like, how hard would it be for the World Rugby's Instagram team or whoever's running it to just respond and be like, "Mm, that's not appreciated here, move on. Like other big companies and stuff are able to do that on their Instagram. Just that little bit of support and showing that it's not on like the way that we're speaking about some players surely has to have some effect. I think rugby has a big job to do generally, I think across the sport. I think it depends on what country you're in, mm. you're in but rugby has a reputation of being like an old white men's sport or old white men in blazers is who who runs it and it it has a lot to do to try and make women more at the forefront i think that's difficult though it's it's something that doesn't happen overnight but i do agree with the instagram comments i think yeah i think there's too much of just sort of passively waiting and just 
not standing against it and being and saying that that's not right oh yeah i don't stand it i think there's also things that just happen in, in rugby more often i think it's because rugby is sort of also the number one thing on my feed yeah um, but i'm i'm like how do these things ha- still continue to happen so the perception agency i think is an instagram account that i don't i know of and it's in the uk and that they're, they're talking about they basically call out things that are just wrong oh okay in, in rugby and i i just don't understand why some of these things continue to happen i kind of i, I kind of laugh at it i think this is the only thing you can laugh at but i know i feel terrible. like if you don't laugh you're gonna cry a little bit yeah but I think in terms of a numbers game, it's so important for men to actively say that things are wrong. For example, we found out earlier this year that we were paid differently than the men's coaches. I mean, we were paid differently as athletes because we're semi-pro and the men are pro, which is fine. I understand that, but I think there has to. I think the financial model has to make sense in terms of hours, in terms of commitment, in terms of what these guys are are actually committing for in terms of qualifications yeah did they ever give you a reason as to why you were being paid less Uh, yeah they they did they they talked about it from a budgetary standpoint which again it's but it it was how the budget was split so the budget was split across men's and women's cults or youth coaches why is it not just a youth budget overall yeah (laughs) and because then it stops people being able to cross over because what i was was going to say was as much as it, as it's important to have these people who are male allies, there has to be a female presence that is allowed into the male space, which is what doesn't happen enough. I think we're lucky in Hong Kong, actually, that there are people in some of the coaching setups within rugby who are very big advocates of getting women into male coaching because that is where things must and need to change. Is that because if men's stays a men's only environment in a coaching sense, that our physios are only women, or S and C coaches are only men, or coaches are only men, that it that is a huge huge problem in sport and particularly in rugby. It shouldn't be restricted in that way. There's not enough. There's not enough crossover. I think we're, I'm glad there's starting to be a crossover in terms of refereeing and coaching referee, refereeing. But that's some of the easiest things to solve. It's the coaching, it's the setups of people that are running these places that is still really difficult. It's, there's not enough women on, on boards, there's not enough women in, in these positions to actually make make an impact. It's tough because obviously we want women in these spaces, but you also don't necessarily want to be the token female or like token ethnicity or anything for that particular reason because then if for whatever reason it goes badly, yeah. then kind of leads you down a path where people don't necessarily want to hire other women. They're like, well, that didn't work out last time. Yeah, I agree with that as well. It's difficult. It's, and I think that's where in anything that I've approached in terms of management, a bottom-up approach is always important because you have to, the way the way you do that isn't just putting any referee, female referee into a men's match. You have to fund these people so that they start early that they have a good exposure that these people are the best referees or the best coaches that you have and I think with the thing with the coaching pay is I'm like I'm more qualified than a lot I think all of those coaches I know so why can't I decide to just coach whichever team I want whether that be was it I'm very happy with my girls under 14 was it set as a strict rule that you could only coach the girls 
I think there's a perception that... Or unspoken rule. Yeah. I think there's a perception that the reason why it's there, the reason why we as players of the club coach the youth is so that they have someone to aspire to, which I completely understand. But, you know, male and female team coaches, why is... Like, they can be coaching a team. There are other females around. There's other ways to inspire these girls. It doesn't have to be through girls only coaching girls and boys only coaching boys because I so I've so my experience with coaching under 12 and under 13 boys is that I as the qualified rugby coach could not get these boys at least this school to listen to me but the coach who was the rowing coach could get them to listen to him I'm kind of just listening in silent like I don't even know how to process that and at that age as well that they've already had that perception how I, as a as a female coach turning up to that environment, I had to be introduced by my credentials first. Like, why aren't I just there because I'm qualified? Why aren't I already... Like, the words that are coming out of my mouth make more rugby sense than the words that are coming out of his mouth. Yeah, I don't have words for that. I think that, like, obviously I don't have much experience in elite sport just from... I met Rosh because I was interning as her <laughs> S&C intern. But it seems like a very macho environment. And I think for me in particular, I walk in with big hoop earrings, my hair is in a ponytail, I'm wearing fake eyelashes most of the time. That in some ways makes me feel as if I have to be three times as qualified as everyone else there to be taken seriously. Yeah. Because you don't want to have that perception already on you. But if you've walked in there, you know you're the rugby coach and it's already there without. Yeah. It's so difficult to navigate. And unfortunately, we have to navigate it. We have to play the game, unfortunately. And that sucks. But it's either that or you cause a ruckus. And I think that's not how you get people to come on your side. So when I worked at the university, so I worked at Durham University after my undergraduate degree. I also did a part-time master's and I was the women's rugby program coordinator. And I worked under the head of rugby, who was a male. And I worked alongside Cameron, who was the head women's coach. I think in that environment I had to pick my battles mm-hmm. and people would sometimes get frustrated at me and sometimes some of my peers so some of the other girls that would help me run the program and say why are you allowing x things to happen why aren't you you know fighting our causes but sometimes these things don't happen overnight I have to ask I have to sometimes sit there look pretty well look pretty but sit there go along with things do things that I don't want to so I earn rapport so when I do ask for these small things then I get them instantly would you mind sharing some of those battles that you did pick it's hard to pick one I was thinking about this it's it's so it just merges into one in your head of just like you're constantly fighting a battle but you're excellent with people as well so I do feel like you said building rapport is a super important part of it but you're very good at that I think I'm good at networking but I've developed that skill Mm. over time I think for me I know to get what I want I need to ask for it I need to be able to mesh in these environments so my the director of rugby was very renowned across the women's club as not being supportive of women's rugby and I, I I think he so he would he would classically only turn up and coach us for the semi-final or the quarter-final in the knockout competitions when we were doing well. Just to claim credit? <laughs> yep. For sure, for sure. But I think he grew to understand more about the women's program with me being sat next to him and, for, and almost having to, to be forced to listen to these things. 
I think I taught him a lot. I taught him a lot about gender issues, like even things about consent and and that things that he would have never considered but you have to consider his background he again played rugby in a very male dominated environment played at a high level and then he and then he was just he's basically been in rugby all his life but in an environment where in the UK you could grow up and never see women's rugby now I think it'd be very hard to do but at that time of course you would never have seen it so you're not educated on it so it's 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 difficult and he was very much driven to make sure that his first team were doing well he would erupt sometimes when we were on the pitch too early when we were standing up the side and our bags were in the way of the boys or things I used to not come in so we'd play games on a Wednesday and if the boys lost fat chance I'm in work on a Thursday morning I've got a coffee meeting somewhere else (laughs) because um I, so I very much made my own hours, so that was that was fine because I would just make up the hours somewhere somewhere else. But he he would come into the office and just be tearing th- things like he would he was such a demanding guy, and there would always be a problem. It would either be with the women, but it would never be the boys, even though the boys were the one that ones that lost. <laughs> but battles wise, I think it's hard to put my my finger on it it's hard to say where there was one specific instance but I think the more that I was there the more that I pushed back on certain things where I felt like I could the more I was able to get out of things so and the more that he supported me because then I earned his respect that's the hard thing even in that school environment with the coaching I had to earn respect with the other coaches I shouldn't have to earn that respect but unfortunately that's the stage that we're at and if I continue to mope about the fact that we can't, I have to earn my respect, I'm not going to get anywhere. I haven't earned that respect yet. So I have to, you have to play the game. You have to enter the game to have a seat at the table. And then when you're, when you're at the table, then maybe you can make some change. But you can't complain from outside the room. That no change is happening. And... Yeah, it's difficult because then people accuse you of being complicit and all of these things. But you just have to, you have, it's small battles. So pick your battles build rapport, be good at what you do, what other advice would you have for people who want to be allies, for people who want to make a change, for people who just want to get somewhere within a male-dominated space? Because I'm having this now, because I'm in a new environment now, and I complain about things. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about that if you want. Yeah, I I think, so the coaching thing I complained about, I think I very much have this label of being the 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 person that compl- not the person that complains but the person that's not happy and the person that comes in and wants to change things because I have been in an environment where I've been able to change things but oh, it's also it's- frustrating when you see things being done and you're like this so obviously could be done in a better way that's more inclusive that gets everybody into it I, that's, those are synonyms of the same thing I yeah. swear my brain has more thoughts <laughs> I so I I've been asked to help out with the club put your hand up for those things like do you you've got to do the shitty work sometimes like i think it's a, it's a lesson for life for anyone men man or woman that you're gonna to have to do the shitty work but if you take the shit then you then you're able to you earn respect you earn rapport that you can't expect to go through life i think there's a very much a, an attitude now of like i shouldn't have to go through these things and i shouldn't have to do that well, unfortunately, that's the reality. You just have to get through it. I'm, I think that's always been something that I, I'm very stubborn, but it's 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 determinedness that turn determinedness that turns into being stubborn, 
and stubborn can sometimes be wrong but you've just gotta you have to just fight through things maybe not stubborn maybe persistent i'm very persistent because you strike me like you're obviously someone who's quite open-minded and willing to hear other people's thoughts so stubborn i always associate being like nope my way piss off yeah i usually believe i'm right most of the time but (laughs) i share that (laughs) yeah i'm i'm open to learn i think i'm trying to think of an example though because i think it would it would help i would actually remembered something that you were telling me at sportsman's one day you were saying and you were talking to me about the importance of just showing up so um when the men were playing you would make sure that everybody Uh, showed up do you want to expand on that part oh yeah so i i very much was an adamant that i was so adamant that we were at the university that we would show up to the games because i so i would get the girls to sit in the stands but we'd be seen as a visible us so at the one point the club had 80 girls but sometimes we'd not all turn up so even if it was 15 20 girls there's a group of girls there sat there watching the boys and we would turn up every week and and i think what it what it made us do was it it was like look we're supporting the boys you need to do the same back and so the one time we had a charity match i said the whole club needs to be there the whole men's club needs to be there. All five teams need to be there. And then the boys' social sec organise a social that same night to start at the same time as the the game. And this was a year and a half into my job. So I'd built very good rapport with the director of rugby at that point. And I, I turned up to the office and I said, we're not watching your game this week. It's not going to happen because we've we've sat there every week for a year now, year and a half watching your game whenever we could and you wouldn't do it for one game yeah and he was livid he was livid with the boys and he called them out and he said who do you think you are and that even that just showed so much growth of actually that's just completely out of order and i think the following year after i left they did a a joint charity match which would have never happened prior to that time if we hadn't just built that rapport Mm -hmm. It's difficult though at universities because it goes in waves because students come in and out. There are good eggs and bad eggs. Yeah. <laughs> and I think so much of it is still student driven. You've got to have people in these clubs, in men's rugby clubs and women's rugby clubs who are willing to work together. Yeah, I think so because like even here at some of the local games, it's always the girls watching the guys. They're always there for support. Maybe because just their matches on afterwards, but they're always there and you always see them. And then the boys, as soon as their game's done, they'll be like drinking, having a piss up. And it's like, where is the mutual respect? Yeah, for sure. But I think you kind of highlight the importance of doing it and putting the work in. So like, we're all about complaining. I love a good complaint, but like you were there match after match showing up. You might you're a nerd of the game self-admittedly but you might not necessarily have wanted to watch every match but you were there and you did it and so you have every right to complain and through that I was able to meet so many people at the club Mm. I was able to so I would make sure that I was in the clubhouse getting to know ex-director of rugby that kind of thing just being there having a presence and being recognizable means that you're you enter yourself into that space you're the girl who's at football club or you're the girl who's at Durham like that that makes you there and you have these conversations I think with networking 
it's so important. I it was something that I hated at university, and they almost forced us into it. And I'm so glad that they did. I remember someone asked me, "Oh, you're from Hong Kong," and they started talking about this old man started talking about the Macau Zhuhai Bridge, which I have no interest in whatsoever. But you're like, "Yes, I love the bridge. Yes, great bridge, <laughs> fantastic bridge, the Greater Bay Area, fantastic." But I, I learned that it's so hard to make a bad impression. It's so hard to make a bad impression. Unless you turn up to something and you're like, like so obliterated drunk and no one else is drunk there and you spill spill red wine down someone or like something where it's so, so horrendous. There is no way that if you are sensible that you can make a bad impression, you either make a good impression, which will last a long way or you get make no impression at all. But a bad one is tough. A bad one is harder to do than making no or a good impression. I think that's good advice or it's something good to hear, especially for people who may be more like introverted or less confident in social situations. You can still go and like be seen at these things so that you feel like you can make an impact or you can make a change. Yeah. And it, I, it happens at touch, for example. So we over the summer, we used to play these big touch games and they were mixed touch and the boys would turn up. But then the the girl the the boys sometimes wouldn't pass to the girls, or the girls wouldn't put put themselves on the wing. And I'd say go and get involved. I'd put myself in the mir- in the middle, and I would actively complain if I didn't get the ball passed to. It's like if if a, if a boy missed passed me, I'd be like, nice miss pass, pal. <laughs> like, yeah. I you don't need to be mean about it. That's the thing. You don't need to be aggressive. You just be be like, hey pass me next time will you like yeah like in a nice like or just you know it's like it's not passive aggressive but it you know it calls it out and says what it says what it is and i think guys appreciate it's like that more. pointed banter yeah pointed yeah. banter mm. don't be mean but don't ask don't get as yeah. well for sure i think that made me earn rapport with some of the guys down at the club like I definitely I definitely made a lot of good friends with them but I also fear sometimes and that a part of that was only because I was able to play in those games I was Mm. able to keep up because even some of the boys said to me they were like oh we love playing with you Rosh because you're able to keep up and I'm like but some of these girls are new and they want to come down and play and they just want to and but then they're respected less because they can't play at that level because maybe they're new to the game or maybe they're just not as good. I don't know how to solve that. I don't know how. Yeah, I'm not sure. Because for me, if somebody shows up and they're there week after week, I really honestly don't care if you're bad. But if you genuinely say to me, like, I was raised very much, my parents are like, you don't have to get the best grades in school. But if you get a D and say, a D is my honest to God hardest work, like that was my best attempt at that, then that's fine. So for me, I kind of, struggle to see from the mentality of oh this person is just crap like so I'm not going to pass them like if they're there week after week I don't know but it's almost as if sometimes girls don't get a chance to be mediocre when you're in these spaces you have to be the best yeah whereas there are so many guys that are mediocre that's the thing there are so many guys that are mediocre but I think it's also there's it's they're mediocre but you know they're one of the guys but they're if it in that situation you're mediocre and you're one of the girls and they don't really know you so then you have no rapport there so then you're just completely outcast and that's not fair it's mm. not fair at all I, I, and I, I don't know I think sometimes that's when I try and remind people it's not the World Cup we're playing touchdown at our local club 
like it's yeah. like there's so much touch politics that that goes on but i think i've i think i've learned from being away in the uk and being in this environment you just have to call it out as what it is otherwise mm. it just continues yeah it'll can keep spiraling i wonder how often guys actually call each other out on it that's what i wonder if ever yeah i think that i think in their own environments i don't think it happens enough like so much counts the language and how they speak about other people how they speak about people who are like you said or like i said more mediocre yeah i once went to an internship with this physio um who at the time was the oh lottie's older sister (laughs) i went to an internship with her and she was working with hong kong rugby at the time and i was like why did you do your masters and then she was like oh to be honest i wasn't that keen but i'm a woman in sport so i have to be three times as qualified and there were things that she was saying she was like i think coaches are scared i'm gonna sleep with the men if i just have a bachelor's degree or something like i'm not actually committed to the sport and it's so much more that you have to show and it's just frustrating so i massively i have so much admiration for you to being able to pick your battles because i feel like i'm a cranky person i'm like i'll either say nothing or i'll just scream i have no in between I do have I, I do love a walk like yeah. a de-stress walk I need a de-stress walk sometimes because there's sometimes I find out these things and I and I want to like flip the table I want to send angry emails I want to how wanna, is this a thing I, I want to be a keyboard warrior so bad but I think I've learned that you just like the most measured response is to to ask your peers ask your other women around you what's the best response because I think with the boys not turning up actually i don't think i came up with the girls that we shouldn't turn up to the next game Mm. i don't think it was my idea at all i just had the power to be able to say that i'm pretty sure it was one of the other girls who said we should just not turn up next time like ask the other women around you what's the best response yeah like or or ask other other male friends and sometimes you don't get a good response but ask what they, they think because i think you know we don't have to i know we're not going to solve it in a podcast no what advice would you give for people who are trying to come up underneath you or trying to be coaches trying to be professional athletes just don't stop fighting really like if you are really passionate about it just work as hard as you can at your craft and and also know that there's going to be good times and bad times covid has taught me that extraordinarily like the first lockdown we sort of had came out of that smashing things because I smashing it because I was because I was so motivated to get through that period and then the third time happens and the fourth time happens and your motivation just it just dips and you go through difficult times but that's okay you know like you don't have to be I think social media definitely gives you just this impression that you have to be on all the time you can be off I actually got sent this something this thing I think Beyonce says it um, but she's like, ha- give yourself a day to feel like shit and then just get on with it. Mm. You can do that. That's completely fine. Like, I think we get st- way too stressed about trying to fight the world in one day. Whereas it's such it's such small steps. And it seems so overwhelming if you think about it like that as well. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, everything is wrong with everything. Like it's, I think one of the questions you sent was, how do you was it how do you determine success yeah or how do you define success how do I define success and unfortunately I'm so results driven Mm. and it's something that I'm continuously working on is I I am so results driven and it bogs me down 
and luckily I have good people around me that say the time that you got on this 3k time trial has no relationship to I relate so hard to to what you're saying how you perform in rugby or how like you could be there's so many other factors that factor into your 3k time because it like if you're trying to be a 3k runner then maybe that's more important but that's that's not that's not important but I also think it's important to be results driven sometimes in some cases because then what are you striving for? You can't be completely process-driven, for sure. But I think there's a balance. You have to have the small steps to get to that big goal, but you can't just think of the big goal. But I, I very much am big goal-oriented. So, for example, one of my big goals when I worked at the university was to get the girls to Twickenham. The Twickenham is the, the university final. We'd never been there. I had all these small steps and missions and ways to get there. There was a strategy and it was it was about building the, the women's program in all areas. So on a performance end, but also from a development end. So we added another university team. We had three university teams and we were the first to have three women's rugby teams in the UK. So that's, that's 90, awesome. 90 girls playing rugby and then there were 13 college teams. Have a strong base of girls and make sure that that strong base of girls continues to get better. So having student coaches that are really dedicated to the girls because we didn't have the money to get in professional coaches for our second and our third team. But professional like student coaches who really cared but also guide them in a way that means that when they do move up, there is there is a platform for them expanding the the performance squad which we created so that it's not just the girls in the first team there are girls in the second team who are getting high level exposure so when they get there there are there are lots of girls who are going to be able to play at a high level Mm. creating depth in that squad so there's there was a lot of things that we we changed and reformed and not all of it worked some of it some of it did some of it didn't but in the end when we got to Twickenham we had so you did make it there yeah we got there in my second year it's like one of my biggest successes I think and that was not entirely my work it was the work of the girls but I think for me one of the big things that I want to do long term is to either work in strategy consulting but work in an area or any any element where I'm able to create a like basically the foundations the house for people to go inside and make the home such a good phrase I like that it's it's creating an environment so an environment at Durham University where those girls were able to come and play the sport that they loved already if they came to university playing rugby or for so many of our girls had grown to love because they were new to it I think that was that was the greatest thing so in that final in that team there were girls that had come from the third team girls that had come from the second team there had been girls that um, that were new to the sport before they came to university, but girls who had played there for a number of years. But it all me- it all meshed together that day, and we didn't win, and that mm. was a hard a hard thing to take. But I think walking out of that tunnel and we got to stand in front of our crowd, and we had a bigger crowd than the other team did, and that was men, women, families, friends, and it and they were all people that were supporting us from the community as well. Yeah. All of these people that had got behind us, it meant that we had done so much more than just a first team. There's so much more that goes behind it than a first team getting there. Like we did community work, we did all these other things that meant that the driving force wasn't just 22 girls on the pitch, it was the 100 people that came and watched us that day. 
That must have felt amazing. Incredible. One of my like, best and most proud moments, even though we didn't win. That would seem to me that you're not just results driven then. Yeah. Yeah. But I think when we lost, uh, that was that was hard to take and I didn't expect it to be so hard. Yeah. I think the re- so the whole day was a whirlwind. So we played that game at 12 and then a load of our alumni turned out. We had like a, a social afterwards where it was alumni old and like some recent ones, some girls who I'd played with in my first year had turned up. Oh, some wow. girls, it was so fantastic. And we were all just together um, having the most incredible time. I had the most incredible evening. But that's a testament to the community that was built over the years as well. Yeah. And that's, and that's why I stayed as well, because I didn't build that from scratch. That was always at Durham. It was just mm. almost trying to formulate it into something that was going to be performance and output driven. But then we get on the bus the next day and we had to go up to Melrose Sevens, which is like the oldest Sevens tournament in the world. Oh, wow. We played in that. <laughs> and actually, that's, that's another story as well. That, so we played in this showcase game that was meant to be on the BBC, BBC Alba, I think it was. And they didn't play the game. They only played highlights of it at the end because they elected to film the men in the changing room, like talk through the old changing room of Melrose Rugby Club. I was expecting you to say the men's game at least. I don't understand what goes through people's heads sometimes. So we came across the, like, the most incredible day and then I think all of us girls just had such a low though because we had such a huge build up to this game and then we'd lost. There was no payoff almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and then the dream's over. And actually, like, I think all of us went through, like, grieving periods mm. where we'd, we'd randomly start crying and, yeah. and we're really quite, quite upset because, you know, this, and it was a whirlwind game as well. The lead changed hands six times in that one game. It was so back and forth. But there were also a lot of what ifs, a lot of things like, could we have done that better? And so it was, it 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 was it was difficult and it was it was a hard few months. But I remember speaking to the rowing coach that used to be in the office, and he was like, "So, I mean, what did you expect? Were you you weren't going to be upset?" And I and I I was like, "No," because I was just concerned about getting to Twickenham. Yeah. And he was like, "Well, that's everything you put your time into. Of course, like it's completely natural. It was my entire life. My entire job was to try and get us to Twickenham." But we didn't think about the winning bit. Yeah. We all wanted to win so bad. But then we didn't win. And it was like, oh. It's almost like you get there and then there's not quite enough time to process the next goal immediately because you don't get that celebrate, like that celebration. Like you made it there, yeah. which is already an incredible achievement in itself. But then so quickly afterwards, you're straight onto the next goal and you're like, oh crap, we have to win. Yeah. What advice would you give for people who are going through a similar grouping period? How did you get over that? You said it was a few months. Was it just time and space that helped? Time. For me, for me, it was interesting. So I got yellow carded in that game. My first oh ever no. yellow card. It's actually my dad's probably proudest moment of all time, getting yellow carded at the home of rugby. So <laughs> I um, got yellow carded at the last minute of the game. Um, but I was yellow carded by a referee who actually refereed in my second cap. Really? The second cap for Hong Kong? Yeah. Oh. She was the referee and I found out the day before that she was the referee and I freaked out because I, 
I ended up getting yellow carded after multiple penalties from the team, but also I wasn't I wasn't necessarily on the right side of the law <laughs> or her the whole game. And I was convinced that she was going to recognise me and I was so worried that in this vital second test that was going to have an impact on the game. You know, worried about things that are... I'm such a worrier sometimes yeah. and like worried about things that haven't even happened. But then one of the girls was like, Ross, she's not going to remember you. Did she? She did. No. Oh, she 100% did. <laughs> Again, it's because there's not very many brown girls around, but brown girls with a posh accent. <laughs> even rarer. Yeah, even rarer. So we, so so she, I was calling the line outs as well. And she turned around and sort of looked at me, clocked it, and then sort of played on. But that game went fine. And I think that helped because, you know, you can control things like that. You can control how you act towards a referee, how you can stay on the right side of the law. But I think you just have to... It's hard, but you have to just keep going and play the next game because then it will get better. You will... I think you all do also have to review. Reviewing is important. Reviewing things that could have gone better and could have gone wrong. But there's not much point in dwelling. I think that's something I've learned definitely recently. Give Give yourself that day to wallow. If it takes longer, it takes longer. But then afterwards, you have to move on. You have to work on the next thing. Yeah. Mm. I think sometimes it's quite a hard balance to strike between dwelling and then finding that drive again when you feel so defeated. Or hard hard balance between dwelling and trying to work on it or being self-critical, but also like in a positive way. Yeah. I sometimes feel like a hamster in a hamster wheel. I'm just like, I have to constantly keep going. And Mm. that's always the the driving motivation. I have no idea where I'm going towards sometimes. Which maybe means I'm not results driven at all. I'm just like mm. trying to keep going, but I feel like it's difficult. It's definitely difficult trying to keep afloat. But it sounds like obviously over the course of your rugby career and your coaching career, you've obviously taken on so much responsibility that you didn't necessarily have to take on. That's obviously a good thing because it's led to change, but it makes sense that you're the one who dwells on it or who worries more because you're the one who feels responsible for all of these things. But there are 14 other girls on the pitch yeah. And you've done your part. And yeah. I think, again, going back to advice from my parents, as long as you can say that you've done your best at that time, that hopefully should give you some comfort. Yeah, I wouldn't change anything from that day. Yeah. You learn so much. You learn lots. You learn everything from, from every match you play. And sometimes you almost hope... That's the thing I say to my under-14s or my under-14s assistant coach, is that it's almost better for these girls to learn some of these things now than it is to learn it when you're at a final at Twickenham. I was at a under-19s game the other day and one of the parents afterwards was complaining that the other team didn't let the losing team score a try and that they thrashed them. And to me, I was listening to that and I was like, "What? the world is not going to let him like score a try. The world is going to be like, okay, now you get beat down, now you get back up and you try again the next time. If anything, it's kind of disrespectful. Yeah. If the other team was like, oh, here, let me give you this try. Like, you want to be able to push yourself yeah. and earn your place. You you learn so much from everything you do. And I think that's almost the thing to take from things that losses is to take the learnings from it because you will learn so much. I remember a semi-final I played once. It was actually against Emily, our good friend. And we were on top of them. That whole game, in, term, uh, in terms of the really key things, the th- big thing that they were on top of us were, of was energy. Mm. They had just had everything that we did wrong. They were screaming, shouting, yelling. Everything that they did right, they were screaming, shouting, yelling. They had just so, so much energy that they just killed us off. Is that based on the team culture? 
Or do you think it's fitness or team culture? Yeah. I think we were fitter than them. Or probably about the same. I think that game as well. I think we weren't at the stage where we were going to win a game because we we didn't know how to we didn't know how to grind some of these wins out because it was blustering win it was it it was a game where we hadn't we weren't really equipped with how to manage that game and again that was more things that we learned but I think more than that they just had that this level of energy Mm. even though that they were their scrum was going back at a million miles an hour they still weren't going to let any tries in they were just on it and they were present yeah and that was my first year Mm. and I think I took so much learning from that I think there was a lot of the stuff that we did with the girls was very much making sure that when we play games like that, we have to have energy. We have to be geeing each other up. We have to be celebrating the small things. If you don't celebrate the small things, then then you just get really beat. You can get really beat and mentally beat by another team. How important is it for everybody on the team to buy into a culture like that? Like what so happens important. if you have one person on the team who's yelling at other people? So important. Mm. So important. It's so hard to manage, but so important. I think I think it's it's difficult when it comes to team culture because I think if there's not buy-in, I think the team culture's from everyone, the team culture's not right for that team. Yeah. Because you can't change some people, but you can you can talk to them about how they act and how they impact other people. You can mm. make people grow from who they are. Because some people are always going to be hot-headed, for example. Yeah. Like I'm a little bit of a hothead. I got an award for being a hothead. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> But I'm never. But I think it's almost where I direct it because at one point in my career I directed it at other girls, mm. and that was that was that's not good because it it brings down people around me. But now my hot headedness is very much directed to other people, like the other team. Mm. So like exerting my energy in that way and being aggressive against the other team, putting them in the often ground because of the re- often towards the referee, but on the far end of the pitch, so, <laughs> so they can't hear me. But not against the girls, trying to yeah. make sure that in that scenario i'm as positive as possible and i'm not 100 percent right there are points where i get frustrated as well i think taking yourself out of that situation and trying to be a better player mm. for yourself and the rest of the team and taking on that feedback is important callum and i have having been having a bit of a debate recently so we've come up on the same side of the debate so i'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you have a player in a team sport who is incredibly skilled so if you're playing hockey you're great you're like technique at hitting the ball perfect but if that player does not get on well with other players or does not buy into that team culture can they be considered a good hockey player or same in rugby. If you've got a player who is very technically skilled, reads mm. the game well, but doesn't get along with other players, doesn't work well in a team, are they a good rugby player or are they just a skilled athlete? How would you describe them? A skilled athlete, that's a good player. In a team sport, you have to be able to adjust to the team, for sure. But I think so many coaches still celebrate players who are don't work well in teams just because they're skilled. And to me, my perspective, I'm like, well, unless that player runs or gets the ball from one end of the pitch to the other, gets that try, gets that goal, why are we celebrating that player so much? You have that so much in under-14s, I think. Really? Because at that age, you have some girls who are physically strong, physically better, and then there are other girls who rely on that person. So we have one girl who is very, very rapid, and they'd be like, oh, just pass the ball to her. And I very Mm. much come on and go well, she's not going to save you. (laughs) You all have to do the work too. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. But also we try and put her and we try and challenge her as the skilled player to put herself in a position where she's going to best benefit the rest of the team. 
Mm-hmm. And luckily she's a, like really mature for her age and understands that challenge and takes that on. But I think it's it's really important for those girls at that age to, to learn that lesson. But also so important for you guys as coaches to be able to pick that and not necessarily focus all your intention just on that player yeah. because she's faster yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and we also stamp out bad attitudes quickly. But we had one girl who, she's really skilled, but she's not fit enough at all and has the worst attitude i sent her on a run the first yeah. session she she didn't like it and i said if you, you walk you run again yeah. not peep out of her afterwards but she i think with her she's she's a troubled kid for sure but i think treating her and speaking to her really honestly it's so important at every level i think to as a coach to speak to your players honestly or if you can't speak to them honestly or can't pro- put it in a way that's going to be nice and receptive or not nice but recepted recepted received received <laughs> recepted <laughs> received in the right way there's then you can say let me talk to you about it later yeah i think that's really important as a coach because you want to give someone honest feedback but honest feedback that's also constructive because i think sometimes as coaches we're sometimes cornered and being like oh i need feedback on this and they're just not good at it and you don't really know how to say that in a way that's going to be constructive because you haven't had the time to think about it maybe and and so you just say i can't answer this now let's meet yeah. another time and we can talk through it i honestly like okay to my family they're gonna laugh at if they hear this because i'm so reactive with them like if i say something i'm just like oh and i'm like instantly just screaming but i am such a big believer like if you get an email that pisses you off don't respond instantly to that email take time like process yourself be like hey why am i actually so pissed off about this okay how am i going to respond to this that's not passive aggressive and i just take the time and then i'll respond but for coaching as well if you don't have the best advice for them straight away i think that's perfect just being like okay i'll speak to you later give me a second to think about it so that i can make sure you understand it and so i can say it in a way that's not painful and today we're so equipped you have the time to review yeah. visit videos to yeah. to be objective yeah to be more objective in something that's really subjective because and and to be and i think being honest mm. if you're not honest with your 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 kids or the people that you coach they know yeah. they know so quickly that because seems to be a big stupid. theme like when i was speaking with kate or with judy she was talking about just authenticity people instantly pick up if you're not being yourself and they won't respond to it and just like we've been talking about today building rapport people aren't going to respond if you think or they think they're just trying you're trying to get something out of them yeah that team player thing i've been thinking about for so long because there's people who i've played with before on the pitch and i'm like a coach has literally said you need to pass and you need to be a team player to them and then they'll actively go and try and do it by themselves and he's sat them down and been like okay well don't play hockey if that's what you want to do you don't need to be a team sport athlete if you want to do it by yourself yeah but i think that and then i've just thought of an example of someone so finn russell who's the 10 at scotland he's very much his own player he got kicked out of the team because he very much was his own player. I mean, there was other reasons. He was sat in the hotel bar getting absolutely pissed and saying really horrid, horrid things. But he is so, so skilled. But he's also not world-class yet, you know? He he has games where he's absolutely flash and there's games where he'll throw an intercept pass and it's not great. But mm. he did. The issue is with those players is they can, when they're on, they're so on. With some of those players of, the, of that level, 
like what um, the example I take is the the fa- famous example is when I think they were down thirty six to five or something like that at half time against England and he he was basically arguing with the coach and was like we can't do this like we need to change how we're doing it the difference though in that scenario is that he was able or had enough rapport with the rest of the players that they followed what he did and he was able to run that game I think that's but that's a different scenario maybe there despite him being so individual in a team sport he has i guess the knowledge to back it up and the other players trust him to do the right thing yeah so i think there's a difference though Mm -hmm. but i can see when players there are players who are individuals and players who individually see things they just need to be able to to like work and assimilate but also get people to back them yeah because it's tough especially if if people don't work well together i really feel like like you said, it might not be the right team culture for that team. I think I've, I've been lucky. I don't think I've been in a, a, a sport environment where I've not been able to work with someone. I've been in a, other scenarios where I've clashed with someone for whatever reason. But I don't think, I don't think I've not been able to work with someone. That would be, I think, a challenge for me. Because I'm very much, my determinedness my, is very much described as I think it was described to me once as being in a shitty little rowboat with like (laughs) the most intense flowing stream going downstream that I would be rowing in the shitty little rowboat upstream with not even a paddle I don't even think with like a little bit of wood I'm so so persistent and determined in that way that if something was not working I'll try and make it work Mm. which is almost sometimes there are some things that just aren't gonna work i'm not good at accepting things that's something that i definitely definitely need to work on but that's also i think that just comes from being me and being a woman you're inherently just gonna fight things all the time because you're like this is not okay <laughs> strong women raise strong women yeah who has been your biggest inspiration to look up to this is such a hard question for me i think my parents have always been such drivers for me but i think in ways that i've never realized until i've been older i think because they they inspired me because they created a home environment where me and my sisters were able to thrive and very much able to become our own people and we're, we're very different people us three sisters but still have strong values, even though we were allowed to pursue our own things. You're the same where it counts. For sure. I think my dad, for example, has always, he's such a great family man. He's such a little wetter. (laughs) He loves my mum that much. He's so whipped, (laughs) but- I love it. But he has this way of just, like he's so supportive of me and my sisters. He's my best friend. He's, He's just so easy to speak to. But also some someone that I, I look for in terms of advice, in terms in a professional setting, in a rugby setting, in any in any any scenario where I'm having problems, difficulties, I'll call my dad first most of the time. And then my mother, my mother is just she's also just as determined as well. Do you think that's where you got it from? For sure, my mom's so competitive. My mum is so she when I was ten, I did a family run. It was my parents and I, and we did a. 2k run 2k family run it was like a swire family run thing and we came third as family woo out of four five (laughs) five families but we but i beat both my parents in this 2k at 10 years old 10 11 years old and my mum was like having none of that so my mum i think from that point onwards just got into all of these different sports so my mum's done pole dancing my mum's done so my mum's now a pilates instructor she has a she has the fitness boot camps in cycling what other sports has she tried piloxing muay thai all of these different things and she's all just, to beat you 
all to beat me mm-hmm. I, I i'll say that i'll take that but <laughs> because she she's just driven like that but she's also really inquisitive and wants to learn so she just sits up in our at-home pilates studio learning and take and she's like the best example of like it's never too you can never be too old to continue to learn and continue these new things i saw an amazing meme the other day it was like a timeline set up and it was like birth to death and then it was like, when is it too late to start something new? And then it's like, goes all the way along the timeline until after death. And it's like, oh, here, here it's too late. Yeah. But I don't know why we're so scared. I love watching you guys play rugby. I'm 21 and I've never played rugby before. Like I've played a bit of touch here and there. And I'm like, oh, I should play rugby. In my mind, I'm like, oh, no, it's too late. But There's a woman in our team who started when she was 38. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's never too late to start, actually. And I think that's something that I need to continuously remind myself of because I think there's so much pressure nowadays to be like, I need to do everything now. I need to be successful in my career now. I need to be doing the career that I want now. And actually, like, hopefully... The thing is, everyone's like, life's so short. Actually, like, Rome wasn't built in a day is my counter to it i think you can only achieve certain things in a day achieve the achievables don't achieve the impossible like the impossible might become closer but you've just got to do what you can at the moment like this this time is such a unique time and we're very lucky to be in a scenario where we have roofs above our heads we're all relatively fine financially we're very lucky to be in that scenario i'm employed Mm. i'm able to do all of these things to achieve what you can right now right now there's no gyms so just achieve what you can which is do all these hikes around hong kong that i've never i've never done as much hiking as i have in the last year and a half but you've achieved something you don't need to achieve everything immediately i was having a conversation the other day and honestly sometimes like when it's hard to get out of bed celebrate the small things you got out of bed that day you made yourself a coffee fuck yeah (laughs) (laughs) like even today this hike yeah it was just randomly organized i was like i want i want to do the beginning of the hong kong trail that's all I want to do. Then I got these vouchers and I was like, I want an ice cream. I'll spend a, a lot of money, too much money on an ice cream before a hike. Who said it was it was not okay? I would like to know everybody else's opinions on ice cream before a hike because I think it's revolutionary. Yeah. I yeah. think it's incredible. I what think everyone should do excellent it. Excellent pre-hike snack. Yeah. You're not too full. You've got energy. You're cool. Just go hiking with a... With, so the first K was with the ice cream. How That's fantastic. Great. We always see like kids running around with like icy poles and stuff. Yeah. They've got to figure it out. And you're going to be working off in the next however many hours anyway. So you might as well. So I love that. <laughs> a professional Hong Kong rugby player says, eat your ice cream, yeah. everybody. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not the person to go through to the food <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah, just definitely. I, I, I think for me, I always want to make as much of the time that I have in each day, which makes me, I have like ants in my pants. When we're on holiday, I can't sit on the beach. I need to go and explore wherever we're at. But also, but then I, I'm really bad at rest and recovery and rest and recovery is so, so important. So I think taking the time to pause is also fine. It's being okay with doing nothing. I feel like I, I'm everyone, like modern life pushes us into this productivity cycle where we always have to be productive. And I think that would be something that I want to continue to work on. And I know is important is just being okay with having a nice day. Yeah, I'm being happy with what we have. It was like that thing going around where it's like, I'm so anxious about what's going to happen next that I'm forgetting that this is something right now that I was looking forward to. These are the times I was looking forward to and I'm not enjoying it. It's so easy to fall into that. Definitely here, there's that hustle culture. Living in the moment 
and I'm very thankful for the current boyfriend he's very much an advocate of living in the moment because I'm such a worrier yeah. I'm such a little scurrier because I just need to I'm a scurrier terrier just trying to make it in this big bad world but sometimes you just need to stop pause relax that'd be definitely that's a, that's a work on for me but at least I know it's there yeah I think it's, it's it's bad when you don't know that you need to stop because then you stop and you're you're almost forced to stop sometimes. I I, I had that. I'd be in the UK and I'd be working my ass off and work. I'd have no off days because I would do the Monday to, through Friday for rugby and then for, for university. And then I'd maybe be coaching Saturday and Sunday and then get straight back into it. And I would just completely burn myself out and I'd just be ill. And that's why I think my parents are my biggest... Like they're my biggest guys as well because they would know they know me so well that they're like take the time to relax they're like very happy to be like i'll pay for your spa day you need to chill yeah <laughs> i i have so many people who are like you need to have an off button because sometimes i i don't have that off button because i feel this constant need to achieve this is such a testing time for me where in a year where i was promised or was told that i could be going to a world cup in six months but we haven't even qualified for that world cup yet the competition was meant to be last year it's now been postponed you just end up having you have to stop you have to read a book you have to do these things that are slower but my mind is so fast-paced and so constantly going that I, I struggle to switch off yeah I'm completely there with you I'm a very black and white person and so Cal, my partner, he's very good at like, he'll see me. And then at night I'll be like fidgeting. I'm like writing down all the things I have to do the next day. And he's like, chill out, please. So like I started reading this month, but again, in true black and white fashion, I read for like three days and then didn't read for a week. And then I read for like three days back. And it's so hard to take time to be slow. Like I've had a big injury in the last couple of years. And even with that, I'm like, okay, but I see everybody else doing these things. I see these people improving in their life and fitness and I want to be able to improve. So I feel like I'm not doing as much as I could be doing. And it's so hard to find that balance. It's so hard to draw that line for yourself and be like, no, it's okay where we are. We're fine. The world's not going to end. Achieve the achievables. Like one of my friends is also called Tilly. She's in the UK in lockdown right now and she's doing lino art. I think it's the most incredible thing ever. Like she just is not doing, she's at home in lockdown and she's just doing lino art. Such a complete pause, but she's actually doing something that has probably no bearing on her skills in life, but she's like also made herself a swimsuit. Like there's things like that. I saw that. Wasn't it so good? So, so good. But she's just done these things in arts and crafts that actually like you have no other opportunity other than a lockdown to do. That I think when things eventually do resume to normal, taking that time for yourself and taking that time to pause is something that it's been in my like New Year's resolutions in the last three years is treat yourself. I think when I say treat myself, I almost need to redefine that and be like, treat yourself to an off day. Treat yourself to a day where you do just be like but I think it's not be lazy just a you day where just reset yeah a reset day because if you burn out one day or like you do all the work that you have to do on one day you're honestly not going to do anything the next day it's not going to work and and reset days are, are days where you see your family or you you just spend time with your loved ones or your friends and not do much or it could be by yourself i think for me i need to define what that reset day is and a reset day that's going to make me feel the best possible i think it's important to have those conversations with ourselves i have a really hard time picking hobbies or i even say picking hobbies or doing things in downtime that 
I don't feel pushes me forward. I finished university and then I started two courses because I'm like, oh, well, this is like not university, so it doesn't really count as work, but I'm still like working towards something. A good tip, just do something useless. Just do yeah. something that you won't necessarily monetize. You won't, doesn't have to build towards anything. Just do yeah. something for you. Like even my failed podcast. <laughs> what was your podcast? My podcast was going to be single and confused and then I found a boyfriend. Damn it. <laughs> Damn boy. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen as well. I was like one episode in and then, oh well, we're now dating and confused. Now we're dating and confused. Maybe we should just call, you should call the podcast Confused. Confused. But I actually really enjoyed that period of just researching useless things that have no benefit on anyone else's life, except for mine, on Tinder, for example. So the first episode was on Tinder and the algorithm and who owns Tinder and the Bumble group. Just these things that like are interesting and intellectually stimulating, but actually require, they have no bearing on my life at all. I think you should still do it. I you should call so. it Rosh is confused. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're the least Single confused person I know. <laughs> I think that was like the one element of my life that was complete, it's, it's still completely out of whack, where I had all of these almost ducks in a row, and then dating Rosh is a, is a hot mess. And then some guy popped up, and it's weird now. <laughs> it's weird now. Now it feels nice. <laughs> yeah, it feels nice. But I'm still very confused as to whole, how this whole situation works as a twenty a single for almost twenty four years, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves with a with a boyfriend who's actually quite nice. He's quite good. He's quite good. Quite well behaved. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's an adjustment for sure. But I think also like we were talking about, social media has that way of making us feel like we have to get everything done professionally, but also socially, especially with so many like young influencers, like all these young people who are having kids, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But it, I don't know why there's that unnecessary pressure just professionally and socially. There's just too much pressure, Rosh. There's, there's pressure to, in a social sense, to follow these life milestones. But we were talking about it earlier. It's never too late. It really isn't. There isn't a point where it's ever too late. And it's just living life by your own timeline. And also being okay with not knowing. I want to know. That already irks me so much hearing that. I'm like, yes, I've said that but instantly. I will know. <laughs> and I, I want to know what's happening in the next year. Nobody knows. And this is the thing with this period is that you don't know. Nobody knows when things are going to reset back to normal. I don't even know if I'm going to be playing in a World Cup in six months. There's no way to plan around my life and I need to be okay with that. And I hate it so much. That fills me with dread. I've tried meditating. I can't do that. Well, apparently people who are very anxious don't necessarily benefit from meditating because being like so within yourself is not necessarily a good thing when all within yourself you're thinking, oh my God, what's next and all this stuff. Like sometimes you need to somehow get things out, which is why I think a lot of the 12 step programs talk about doing acts of service and stuff. So trying to meditate in a way, but with other people, if that makes sense, by doing something for someone else where it's a way of getting yourself out of your head yeah i think for me it's a it's maybe like switching off and doing things where i take myself away from my routine so camping last weekend yeah was really beneficial for me or or doing something where yeah things things that make me happy i think that's meditative um getting enough sleep so important i'm not a functioning human without like eight to nine hours of sleep my mom took me to the doctor once and was like is she sick she sleeps too much and the doctor was like no some people just sleep a lot it's fine and I'm like thank you I used to be like that but but now I think I'm more in a routine I think what that's been the hard thing of going in and out of waves is that my routine has changed so much that I'm struggling to maintain consistency in a life that 
I like want to be consistent so I can consistently hit goals. But again, it's like rolling with the punches. I need to be better at that. Mm. I think acceptance is yeah. something that I could definitely be okay with. I need to be okay with being okay. Or being okay with not being okay. Yeah. I'm not I'm not accepting at all. No, I don't accept that. Even saying it made me feel icky. I'm like, nope, I will change this. <laughs> I Somebody can... give us answers. Yes, please. We're going, around the we're going around in circles. I can see Rosh starting to move. I think I've broken her back because we're lying on the bed, but we're very comfy. Do you have any parting words of wisdom? Just keep going. Just keep going. Keep moving the wheel, but at your own pace. Yeah. Except the times when it's not going to go as well. You know, keep moving, keep fighting for women. For women. <laughs> no, I think we'll get there. We'll get there. We won't get there in my lifetime, but things will continue to change. It just won't. I think it, you can't expect it to be immediate, immediate, but every small thing that you do is... Don't get disheartened if, it, yeah. if it's not immediate. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, build the foundation so someone can build a home. I love that. I hope I, I hope I continue to do that for the rest of my life. I think that's what makes me happy. That's how you it's, define success. Yeah, for sure. It's building that house that people can make a home. I think for me, that's, it's, it's hard because I think I have this conversation with my boyfriend all the time. Because he he says, surely the drivers should be your own drivers. But because I'm an extrovert, a lot of my drivers come from other people. Because it makes me feel good when other people feel good. And I think that's okay. That's my stubbornness that's going to say that's okay. Because I think that's what I... I think I, I find so much, so much... I get so much out of that. Of wanting to build a house to make a home. Making people feel comfortable it makes me happy and that's what makes that's what drives me and I think that's okay that's that that's okay get being getting that but there's a balance of when you have to be your own self and have to be happy with yourself and happy with making yourself happy and that's a bit where I need to grow is almost being able to be accepting about accepting of myself just accept be present and that's okay yeah i think that's a good parting word yeah thank you so much for being here Thanks talking for to me, me. <laughs> it's so Yay. nice see you guys no official way to sign off ever 